0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I'm very excited because in this podcast episode, we are talking about religion. That is something that we normally d- don't address very often because it is, it's, it's pretty controversial. Yeah. I think uh what what is it guns politics religion the three things that you're not supposed to bring up on a date. Do I have Right, that? a date a or friend? a
3: family dinner?
2: Yeah. Yeah. But in this podcast we we can we can tackle the the touchy subjects. Right. And the reason that I'm excited about This episode on women and Islam, in particular, is because we have an expert, even though she doesn't like to call herself an expert, Hina Dadaboy, who for any skeptic readers out there, her name might ring a bell because she writes over there, and she... Initially, got in touch with us, Caroline, in response to our episode on crazy cat ladies, because she had some clarifications about the that that T. Gandhi, right, the bacteria, and so she wrote us and she was like, "Yeah, I write for Skeptic," and I was like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" And then I was like, "Wait, you're writing this book, The Skeptics Guide to Islam? Can we talk to you, please?" Yeah, and Hina said yes. Yeah, like like Kristen said, she does hesitate
3: to call herself an expert, but she has a really excellent point of view because she grew up a practicing Muslim and then ended up growing up, in her words, to become an atheist, feminist, secular, humanist, or, she says, in other words, a skeptic writer.
2: Yeah, and spending time specifically in the skeptic community, and she'll talk about this more in the interview, uh, she realized that... There are a lot of misconceptions out there about Islam and I felt like it would be so informative for us to have a chat with her about specifically women in Islam because I feel like there are so many stereotypes out there in terms of Islam being uh, just inherently repressive for women. The whole thing about uh, whether or not women should uh, cover their faces in public. There are places like France that have actually banned that outright. And uh, I just wanted to get more of an expert perspective on what that is. Because one thing, Caroline, I didn't even know about until I started researching for uh, my chat with Hina was that Islam also has a strand of feminism within it. There, Islamic feminism exists,
3: right? And this is uh, Islamic feminism in particular is sort of fighting from within. You could say it's women who are still Muslims, not necessarily atheists like Hina, but they are using interpretations of the Quran to educate. Other women, but men also, about women's rights, uh, you know, religion in general
2: to sort of expand women's roles in their culture. Yes, because these uh, female scholars would point out that in some ways the Quran is more gender progressive than the Bible was at the times when they were written. And uh, speaking more about what Muslim feminism is, Um, um Yasm, who is at the Center for Muslim Minorities and Islam Policy Studies at Australia's Monash University defines a Muslim feminist as a person who, quote, adopts a worldview in which Islam can be contextualized and reinterpreted in order to promote concepts of equality and equality between men and women and for whom freedom of choice plays an important part in the expression of faith. And to me, that is certainly not an aspect of Islam and women within Islam that we really ever hear about in media coverage about that. I mean, because, I mean, from our perspective sitting here, you and I, neither of us are um, Islamic We don't have an inside view in the Muslim community. And so we wanted to talk to Hina. She'll talk about um, Islamic feminism later in the podcast. But we wanted to pick her brain about the Skeptic's Guide to Islam, her background with it, and really just doing a lot of myth-busting. Because I think there are a lot of misconceptions that need to be cleared up about not only the Islamic faith, but women's role specifically in that. So, yeah, should we get to it? Let's get to it. So this is my interview with Hina Uh You can also find her writings on Skeptic, and be sure to check out her Kickstarter page for The Skeptic's Guide to Islam. It has been fully funded, and she's working on it. It's going to come out later this year. But with no further ado, here is my chat with Hina
4: talk to us about your your personal experience with Islam uh how it i don't know has influenced your outlook not only just on your daily life but also on um religion in general especially now since you identify as an atheist
5: all right well i was born into a muslim family um which like most religions generally means you're going to be a part of that religion unless your parents take some special steps to ensure that you you know are some sort of independent Um, my family can trace its roots back to India, but we came to the U.S. by way of a lot of different countries. And my parents, they they always self-identified as Muslims, but they got really religious when I was about five years old. And before that, I grew up in kind of the 90s, everything you can do, I can do better, girl power mentality. But then it kind of got limited because my parents got more religious. It kind of went into everything you can do, that I'm allowed to do, I can do better. (laughs) So it got a little different. And um, as a Muslim, you know, even if you're a man, there's a lot of rules. And a lot of Muslims don't follow all the rules, just like a lot of people in a lot of religions sort of choose what they follow and what they kind of say, oh, that's the past. Um, But I had a lot of trouble with the rules for women because – this whole being loud and fighting for feminism thing, it's not a new thing. I was always kind of that way. I never used that word when I was a kid, obviously. I didn't know to use the word feminism, but I struggled a lot with it. Um, one example would be I kind of have a loud voice and I have to moderate it conscientiously. And I used to cry about it all the time to one of my cousins saying, you know, I'm not a good Muslim woman because my voice isn't low enough. Mm-hmm. Um so I had a lot of trouble, but I did try really, really hard. Um, in fact, I realized later that I tried harder than a lot of the people I knew in my family, people who to this day still consider themselves Muslims, but they don't necessarily try to follow every single word of every single rule. Um, I tried to find a wiggle room that I could find. I did find ways to be different um, and things that, we're more cultural than religious. Um one example I can think of just off the top of my head is uh the Islamic practice of slaughter. Um it's similar to the um slaughtering process in Judaism for kosher. And my dad is really big on it and I I used to do it when I was a kid too. Like I think the first time I did it I was like 14 or 15. And guys would say, oh, are women even allowed to do that? And I'd say, yeah, the Quran doesn't say anything against that. What's your problem? I'm so cool. I can do this thing. Um, And then there were all-girls parties that sometimes uh, women would throw because, you know, in Islamic culture there's modesty, especially in front of men. But women would throw all-girls parties so that girls could show their hair and do their makeup and show off their earrings and cute dresses and all that. And But even at those, I would dress more conservatively than the other girls. So even in my practice, I was always a little bit different. <laughs> um, and eventually, I did leave Islam. Um, it was really more for philosophical reasons. It wasn't because I was mad that I was a girl or something. Um, but after I left, I completely unraveled all those kind of notions of gender that I was taught. I sort of consciously picked it all apart um, but my gender work did not end. Now I do gender work within the secular and skeptical community. So mm-hmm. that's kind of my background.
4: Well, uh, talk to us about the Skeptics Guide to Islam. You you just mentioned um, being active in the skeptic community. So give me the give me the background of why you wanted to do it. Progress. What what your goal? with uh, with writing it is, all, all that stuff.
5: When I first became an atheist, I really needed just support. I needed to feel like I wasn't the only person in the world who had these thoughts. Um, and so I sought out my local atheist and skeptical groups. And I did find a lot of acceptance, a lot of sympathy, um, but a lot of ignorance. And that didn't surprise me necessarily. But I thought that as skeptics, they would question a little bit more. But you know, you don't always question everything. And I don't think a lot of the people in that community realized just how uh, how many misconceptions that they had. Um, also, I think a lot of them didn't realize, and this is, again, going back to the lack of information thing, um, that that they just had one side of the story or one element of the story, or that they were unfairly taking a single story and projecting it onto the entire global Muslim community, which is huge. It's a huge community with multiple cultures, multiple sects of the religion, all of that. So I found myself constantly correcting and demystifying the same things over and over. I kept getting the same questions. And after six years, I realized, wait a second, there's totally room for me to go in and write something. Mm -hmm. And so it started with me um, posting a few blogs about Islam on Skeptic and seeing what the response would be. Um, it might seem obvious now, but back then, there I mean, I knew there were a lot of ex-Muslim writers as it was, including a lot of ex-Muslim women who written, there's Ayan Hirsi Ali, Taslima Nasreen, Mariam Namazi. So I thought that writing about Islam was sort of played out. As it turns out, it isn't, um, especially not from my perspective, which I'm Western born and raised, but I come from a non-Western background. So I decided, hey, why not see if there's any interest in this book? So I started my Kickstarter uh back in the fall or late summer, I'd say, I should say. And the response kind of floored me. Um I got almost double what I asked for on Kickstarter. I have a publishing company and I realized that there really is a lot of room for this. So um, after my Kickstarter ended, I was working on uh, my manuscript, but then I got invited to speak at all these conferences because it was conference season. So my manuscript progress was a little bit slowed, but it should be done by the end of the year, which means that the actual publication will be sometime in spring just because publishing companies take a little bit of time.
0: This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
1: Yes. And right now, that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced
0: Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better,
1: H E L P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help.
4: Uh, well, you, you're talking about the these common misconceptions that you would encounter, questions that you would get over and over again. Um, were any of them kind of directly related to aspects of like gender and women, especially saying, you know, of your experience as. You know, finding out that you were a woman in, uh, you know, an Islamic community, then would would that lead to a lot of questions? Because I feel like there, there's so, like I said uh, when we first started talking, that there is a lot of stereotype and tied to specifically the role of gender.
5: In Absolutely. Islam. Oh yeah. You know, there was a lot of patronizing hand patting and head patting, like so good of you to escape, as if, you know, I'd been in some kind of death cult and had gotten away. And, you know, I sort of look, I I understood that people meant well, but I'd sort of look at them and go, well, well, what do you mean? It's not like my parents never let me out of the house or anything. I mean, I started college and I was still a Muslim. Um, They let me out of the house for that, at least. Um, But the main thing is that there's this sort of, I call it the myth of the monolith the idea that Islam is one thing, Muslims have one single set of beliefs, that's what they all believe, that's what they always will believe, it will never change. And part of it is that Muslims sometimes inadvertently perpetuate it because they like to talk about how Islam is more united than Christianity or that there's fewer interpretations, but the reality doesn't quite match that. Um, if the Muslim community worldwide spans so many countries, cultures, languages, interpretations, Um, different families have different rules. I mean, my family was particularly strict in some ways, but there were families that were stricter and families that were a little bit looser. Um, And so it's not as clear-cut and not as easy to define as as people like to think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you turn it around in a lot of ways, I would say that um, Western, to, to Muslimize, Western women have just as many repressions to them. I, I don't necessarily agree with it a hundred percent, but this is something that a lot of Muslim women will bring up the idea of the beauty myth. Um, how much of a choice is it to shave your legs and your armpits as a Western woman? It's kind of a loaded question, but we get a lot of societal pressure to force us to do a lot of things that sort of play into the whole beauty myth. Um, you know, you're not, there's no holy book telling you thou must shave your arms and legs unless you count Cosmo or something. But, you know, if you don't shave your arms and, and legs, you get some level of social shaming and pressure to do it. And so it's similar in within Islam. Yeah, there are rules, but how much you follow them really depends on how much social pressure you get. And there are a lot more Muslim women that don't cover their heads than there are women in general who don't shame their arms and legs in American society, I would say
4: yeah, I mean that that uh what you're saying totally reminds me of uh the question that I wanted to ask you about um the whole commentary around head coverings and burkas and uh specifically like when when France was passing that law, I just remember reading so so many articles actually on on both sides of women saying like, yes, absolutely, this is, you know, it's completely repressive. And obviously, these were like white women (laughs) saying this. And then on the other side, hearing like from women who wore head coverings or face coverings and actually felt a form of liberation from that. So I was wondering what your your thoughts are on, on kind of those those issues?
5: Generally, banning something doesn't necessarily make change sort of the culture around it. So even if we are assuming that Muslim women are forced to cover, which is not necessarily the best assumption, banning them from entering the public square doesn't help matters because it sort of forces them to be home. It forces them to be away from public discourse. So even if our goal were to be, let's have fewer women covering, forcing them away from public interaction isn't necessarily the best way to go about it. And then to look at it a little more deeply, when I was a Muslim woman, I considered myself liberated through covering because I didn't have to submit to beauty norms. I didn't have to wake up at the crack of dawn and curl my hair and put makeup on and what I assumed Western women did, which may or may not be true. But, you know, in essence I could get up and put my headscarf on and I thought I was being judged for my intellect rather than my body. And so I found liberation through it, so I don't think it's fair to sort of tell people, well, you must feel this way about this thing. Um and that, you know, the more the more we engage and interact with each other, really just overall the better, as, as platitudinous as that might sound.
4: Well, in your experience, um when you know, you uh moved away from the religion, I'm assuming there was a time when you you probably decided to stop wearing a head covering, did you feel, I mean, do you feel now, kind of uh, outside of uh, Islam, more of the pressure of these, uh, the beauty myth, the beauty ideals
5: and and all of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, Because I don't live in a Muslim country, I live in the United States, and I have my whole life. I didn't feel much pressure from people to cover my head. Um, I felt pressure from within my religion, but, you know, it wasn't like outsiders would gawk at me if I didn't wear a headscarf. And now that I don't wear a headscarf, I do feel a lot of pressure. I mean, I have naturally curly hair. I don't straighten it, and I live in Southern California. This does make me an object of of sort of oddity. You know, I get people touching my hair without my permission and saying things like, oh, I know a great product to fix that problem, and I'll look at them sort of saying, what problem exactly? Um I don't, my body isn't necessarily the ideal, Um, I'm sure all women think that way, but I definitely fall outside the norm in a lot of ways. And yeah, I, I have to think about it more. I have to sort of realize that now every piece of clothing I wear, every choice I make in terms of my hair, my makeup, my nails even, it's making a statement in a way that I kind of didn't expect, so I have to think about these things a lot more, and it can feel a little bit overwhelming sometimes, mm-hmm. especially at first it was really overwhelming.
4: What are some, I mean, we've kind of talked about some of the, the common misconceptions just in terms of people assuming that, like you, you said, the myth of the monolith saying, hey, well, you know, all Muslims everywhere must believe and act the exact same way, which obviously is is wrong and we've touched some on um on the, the head coverings and stuff. But what are um I guess some other misconceptions about um maybe gender in or at least from your experience of gender in uh Muslim communities, just and also the idea that, that it's inherently repressive for women. Because I feel like that that is something that does that's all there's always the undercurrent of that in almost like every Every media coverage that I will will read about it,
5: well, I mean uh I mean, I do a lot of work with feminism in secularism, and it's it's bears repeating patriarchy is pretty much everywhere, and you can find it in everything. I thought that by entering the secular community, I'd be stepping away from patriarchy. I believe this too, you know, I thought, oh well, religion must be the root of all this sexism and double standard and all that. And then I get in the secular community and well, it was still there. Um, So no matter where you go, there's some element of sexism in the world and it's worth sort of fighting against and it's worth bucking, of course. Um, And brave women all over the world buck the trend, no matter what tradition they come from, but it's, it's there and it's everywhere. Um, In terms of Islam itself, um, the monolithic thing, it, it comes up a lot um especially when you talk about muslim practices and the actual arabic terms i find that a lot of outsiders will use the word burqa to mean any kind of head covering which is really inaccurate if you don't know the terms i just would advise saying head covering or face covering um burqa is actually a particular garment that'd be like me calling your t-shirt a button down it just doesn't make any sense um Another one is um, a big one, actually, uh, in terms of misconceptions, is that Muslim women cannot inherit. Um, Muslim women actually can inherit. They just inherit less than men do, and that is tied into the Islamic notion that men are providers and whatever money that they have goes towards their family, whereas if a woman has money, it's hers. She doesn't have to give it to her children or husband or share with them at all. So um, Muslim women can inherit just less. Um, there's another, I guess, kind of related myth that Muslim women are not allowed to work. That's actually not true, and especially because in the Islamic marriage, a Muslim woman actually is not required to do child care or housework. She is permitted to put into her marriage contract with her husband, I don't want to do any housework, and I don't want to do any child care, and you have to hire a maid for that. So if she chooses to do that, that frees up a lot of times, so she could definitely work if she wanted to do that. Um, another big myth is that multiple wives are commonplace. It's not commonplace at all for Muslim women to be one of many wives, um, just financial reasons. Because according to Islamic law, a man can have up to four wives, but he has to treat each with exact equality. So if you buy a giant house, a diamond ring, and a Mercedes Benz for one wife, if you take another wife, well, that's what you also have to do. So most Muslim men just can't afford to have more than one wife. Um, Another one, and this is one that people will sometimes even sort of oddly directly ask me, they'll say things like, do you have a forced marriage or an arranged marriage? Um, While it is pretty common for Muslim women to have some sort of arrangement going on with their marriage, at least in the sense that their parents will introduce them to someone or engage in some sort of matchmaking, um, Forcing to, a girl to marry is explicitly prohibited in Islam. You're supposed to ask her permission and get her consent, at least in some way. So that's definitely out. Um, another one is that all women who are covered would force themselves to, or, or have been forced to cover. Um, that's, that could be true. I mean, I know there are girls out there who have been forced to cover, and I'm not trying to say that it never happens, but that's not always true. And it's not fair to assume that that's the case. Um, and again, we get back to the armpit and leg shaving. Are we forced to do that? On some level we are on some level. We aren't. So it just, it depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, another one, this is getting into, I guess a little bit more of the ickiness factor. Um, or I say ickiness because people have sometimes directly asked me questions about it, about me personally. And I find it kind of weird, but it's worth addressing. And that's about the hymen. Um, People sometimes will say things like, "Oh, well, if a girl doesn't bleed on her wedding night and she's Muslim, she gets killed." Right? That's actually more the Old Testament than the Quran. The Quran actually says that if you marry, if a man marries a woman, and she does not bleed on her wedding night, um, unless he can, he has any kind of credible evidence to prove that she's not she has had sex before marriage, he has to believe her because she is a Muslim woman and she should not lie. Mm-hmm. And so, you know that the whole idea of, of Muslim men being obsessed with the hymen, it might be true in certain Muslim cultures, but in the Quran itself, unless he has evidence against her, he cannot assume his new bride is not a virgin if she says she is. Um, and this last one I kind of want to go over a little bit. I was surprised to hear, because I had always heard this about Jews and Catholics, but I've had non-Muslims ask me, hey, you know, so Muslims have sex through a sheet, Right. And the first time someone asked me that, I laughed. I'm like, where are you getting this information from? I've never even heard of this. But I've had more than one person ask me, so I thought it bared mentioning, Muslims don't have sex through a hole in a sheet. (laughs) That's something I've heard about Jews and and Catholics, and I've heard that it's not true about them either. So that's definitely not true. It's kind of funny in a way, because I feel like any outside group to mainstream Christianity somehow gets demonized with the same myth about the sex sheet.
4: <laughs> um, well your Kickstarter page also mentioned uh, on there when you you're talking about what uh you're going to address in the skeptics guide to Islam, you mm-hmm. mentioned the seventy two virgins and pubic care maintenance. So I wanted to know why why you would put those out there. I assume that's another those are two things, you know, that might come up a lot or um wh- why why mention the this talk about the seventy two virgins and pubic care maintenance and what and what specifically do you want to um, clear up in the Skeptics Guide about those two points.
5: Well, uh, one of the very first things I wrote about Islam on the blog was uh, about the 72 virgins. I was just tired of of this question because people people won't even present it as a question. They'll sort of make a crack about it or a joke about it. They'll be like, oh, ha-ha, you know, if you had been stayed Muslim and you, you and your husband had died, he would have 72 virgins in heaven. How can you compete with that? Ha-ha. Or... What if those 72 versions turned out to be angry nuns or World of Warcraft players? Um, You know, people make a lot of jokes about it, but that's because all they've heard is the term 72 versions. Just the term itself is a little bit deceptive in translation because in classical Arabic, 72 is meant to be um, a number. it, It would be similar to me saying to you, if I told you once, I told you a thousand times. Um, I don't literally mean I've said it to you a thousand times. I mean I've said it to you a lot of times. And so 72 is intended to mean many or a lot or more than you could ever imagine. And virgins um, is another thing where people go wrong. They think it means you know some sort of shy, shrinking woman or an inexperienced woman or something along those lines. Um, the concept of virgins is the ultimate in sort of sexual pleasure is not one that's limited to uh Muslim culture or Arabic culture. Um, it's something that until very recently was very common in, in Western culture. You know, you can read historical uh, books and documents and stuff that talk about, you know, the pleasures of bedding a virgin and all that. So it, it goes back to that sort of, I mean, pretty patriarchal and misogynistic notion granted, but this idea that a virgin untouched woman is the best that a man could ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, So 72 virgins is essentially a way of saying as much sexual pleasure as you could ever want. Um, And another big misconception associated with that is that the virgins are going to be people. Whereas in Islam, the virgins or who which they're called, don't even try to pronounce that. It's okay. (laughs) Um, The virgins are um, created by Allah specifically for heaven. So they're, as I jokingly kind of called them heavenly sex bots.
4: <laughs>
5: so that's what they're supposed to be. Um, and in terms of pubic hair maintenance, this was sort of a specific instance, but um, not the first time it happened, or not the last time it happened, but the first time it happened, um, it was this guy new knew, and he was kind of crass, I guess, as far as people go. And he had a thing for Middle Eastern women and he was telling me about how he was telling his one of his gym buddies that he wasn't really into white women, he was really into Middle Eastern women. Um, and his gym buddy laughed and said, oh, ha-ha, you need a machete to get through that pubic hair. And I, I kind of looked at him, and he said, oh, what's, what, what's wrong with that? You know, yeah, Middle Eastern women tend to have more hair. I said, yeah, but in Islam, actually, and this is not always practiced by every group I've been finding, but the way i was always taught and the interpretation that i always got is that muslim men and women are required to keep their pubic hair and armpit hair maintained um it's not supposed to exceed the grain of uh the length of a grain of rice so um when i hit puberty my mom handed me a razor and told me to shave really yeah and i had never even shaved my arms or legs i was like 10 when i got my period so I was very confused, and I said, what do you mean, shave what? What are you talking about? And my mom, you know, she was raised in kind of a more shy culture where they don't really talk about the body, and so she managed to communicate to me that I was supposed to shave my mons, and it was it was very weird um, <laughs> for me. But, you know, that's actually one of the, it's part of the body purity laws in Islam, that men and women are supposed to keep their pubic hair trimmed or shaved.
4: I did not know that.
5: Most people don't <laughs>
4: well what uh what are your thoughts on uh Islamic feminism because from stuff that i uh had been reading in preparation for our interview, it seems like they um like one of the the prevailing ideas behind islamic femi- feminism is that um actually like the Quran and uh the guidelines that were outlined were gender revolutionary in a way, mm-hmm. compared to what uh, other things that were going on um, at at the time in terms of, of gender relations. So um, if you could let us know a little bit like what uh, what it is and kind of what what you think about it as an atheistic, secularist feminist.
5: <laughs> well, uh, when I was kind of transitioning out of Islam, I did read up a lot about Islamic feminism, and I was always kind of a fan of it in the sense that I sort of saw it as unraveling what were kind of the patriarchal structures within Islamic cultures versus Islam itself. And so I always liked that idea of going back to basics, going back to the Quran and Muhammad's example, as opposed to what culture had to say about it. Um, Now that I'm away from it, um, I really just admire people who do work in Islamic feminism. They seem really brave to me. Um, because they often make a lot more enemies because they're doing things that go against what people think is Islam, but really isn't. Um, And in the work of insiders within any religion is always more credible and helpful than outsiders. So I'm doing what I can to increase secular people's understanding of Islam and um, Muslim feminists and progressives do their part to reform from inside. And they often can have way more of an effect than someone like me can to the actual Islamic community. Um, One example I can think of just off the top of my head is Irshad Manji. She is a Muslim progressive out of Canada. She's out lesbian as a matter of fact. And she came up when, um, when I first left Islam because my parents uh, took me to see this Imam up in Northern California and he and I were talking and he said something about her. And I said, oh, well, she's a progressive and a feminist and a lesbian. How can you even bring her up? And he said, well, she's at least inside the house. And by that, he meant that she's at least within the framework of Islam. She still calls herself a Muslim. So she can do a lot more work in terms of someone like her in any case, um, not necessarily just her, but she can do a lot of work to reform and bring some changes about in the Muslim community than someone like me can. So I definitely give them a lot of props.
4: What about um uh when you're talking about reform from the inside what about uh men in the community I mean I'm I'm going to assume that there uh there have to be men who are you know wanting to do
5: similar things in terms of gender equity There definitely are I mean there's just um a lot of them are um western educated in some way so that kind of taints them a little bit sometimes in the eyes of certain muslim groups but there are there are definitely um muslim men who are working to make things better for women in the muslim community. So yeah, they 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 definitely exist. It's just it's tough going for them. <laughs> I I have it a lot easier, so I you know, I just hats off to them really.
4: Now, this this might sound like a, a really basic question as well, but um just for uh, to help enlighten listeners and myself as well, like what are some when, when we're talking about reforming from the inside, inside? What are some of the the major kinds of of reform that um, uh, you know Islamic feminists and uh, people more in mean, your position would be advocating for? Uh, well, definitely,
5: uh, there's there's a lot of work against any sort of forcing, because when you have uh, societies where men have all the power and women don't necessarily have as much of a say in terms of the legal side of things. You get a lot of situations where, you know, things are, are not necessarily allowed legally, but that's kind of how the practice goes. So it depends on what country you're talking about too. Um, One problem within my own community, which is the uh, Indian and Pakistani Muslim community is uh, forced marriage. It's not, It's not like everybody's getting a forced marriage, but it happens, Um, especially you'll hear about immigrant families sending their kid to their home or origin country for a vacation, and then they'll end up getting married and they'll take away their passport and things like that. So there actually is a bureau in England against forced marriage because the Indian Muslim community is so big there. So that's one particular concern. Um, But in general, just working against the idea that you can force women to do anything and also the idea that, um, like you were talking about Islamic feminism, this notion that um, Islam was revolutionary in terms of gender roles and just sort of bringing it back to that. Because you'll go to Muslim countries and they won't act- actually allow women to inherit or they'll force women to get married and things like that. And that's not supposed to be allowed in Islam. So a lot of Islamic feminists and Muslim progressives will say things like, well, we need to go back to the values of the Quran. Um I mean, it just depends on the country, I guess. If there
4: is a major takeaway um, or anything that we that I didn't ask you specifically about in terms of women, gender, um, anything like that, um, that you would like listeners to to take away from this conversation,
5: what what might it be? Well, um, well, I guess mainly it's two things, and it bears repeating about the monolith. Just re- people need to realize that. They have a textured and nuanced understanding about their own cultures and their own religions. They need to understand that other cultures and other religions have that exact same thing going on, where different people have different ideas, and it's not necessarily safe to walk in with all these loaded assumptions. And the second thing would be to listen to more voices than just mine. Mm -hmm. Um, I speak from my particular perspective as someone who was born, raised, and educated in the West but comes from a Muslim background, and I no longer believe in Islam, but there are lots of Muslim voices out there. There are an infinite number of blogs written by Muslim women. Um, There are other ex-Muslims who speak as well. There are Westerners who live in in non-Western countries and deal with Muslim women all the time. There are so many voices out there, and people just need to sort of texture their own understanding by getting out there and actually exposing themselves to those voices.
3: Well, a special thanks to Hina for talking with us about this very interesting topic. I think she really enlightened us in particular, I hope she also enlightened you guys out there listening. And if you listeners have anything to comment on, any perspectives you'd like to share or questions you'd like to ask, please hit us up. Our email address is momstuff at discovery.com.
2: Yeah. And if you'd like to do any further reading about this, um, I recommend checking out the Muslim Women's League website as well. It's mwlusa.org and they have um, all sorts of topics that they talk about, um, especially from different gendered perspectives. But yes, big thanks to Hina for talking about us because uh I think it's really cool to get the perspective of someone who's been inside that community and now is sort of outside the community, but still, you know, it it gives you a a unique perspective on things. And any Muslim listeners, especially, shoot us an email, com, or find us on Facebook. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks
1: everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice. Now are our eyes.
0: Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have
1: professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you.
0: This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by Catan.
1: This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise.
0: And
2: now back to our letters. We've got a couple here on our episode about gynecologist's office 101. And I have one here from David. And he writes, first, let me say that I am a gay 40-year-old man. I have never been, nor have I needed a gyno. However, I was really appreciative of the information about what goes on. And here's why. Why? I work as a certified community-based sign language interpreter. While getting my BA in interpreting, I was being asked to interpret for a gynecological visit. Since this was an assessment on my skills, it was taped with permission. During the visit, I realized that I had no clue what anything in that office was. This includes the woman and her parts, too. Uterus, cervix, vagina, and more were thrown out. Mentally, I was overwhelmed. When my esteemed instructor, an older woman with many years of experience in the field provided feedback the one line that stood out for me was this david it is very clear you have no idea how the female body works you may want to take some time to study that in depth <laughs> thanks again for the show <laughs> and thank you david for that delightful email
3: i i really like knowing when we can educate people for whatever purpose yes
2: for sign language or sign
3: language Okay, well, this one is from Melissa. She said she wanted to add a couple of things to our topic. She says, I happen to have a male gynecologist, and I wouldn't trade him in a heartbeat. He and his staff are friendly, insightful, and informative. When I'm getting examined by him, there's always a nurse present in the room. The reason for this is both a legal one and a time one. Legal in the sense that if for any reason a patient tried to bring a lawsuit for inappropriateness by the doctor towards the patient, there is always a third party and it is not a he said, she said issue. Also, as a time saver, the nurse is there to assist the doctor with any implements or tools and general procedures. I'd like to add in two more tips as well to help the ladies while they are being examined. For me, it has always helped to make small talk with the doctor and nurse to help ease any nervousness, and it provides a good distraction throughout the examination. It is also very important that your female listeners not feel embarrassed or ashamed about their lady bits because the gynecologist has seen all shapes and sizes, and it is no different than them looking through their own anatomy books
2: good point, Melissa. Thank you. Yes, excellent things to keep in mind. And uh, thanks to everyone who has written into Mom's Stuff at discovery.com. You can also message us on Facebook. Like us there while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can find us on Tumblr as well at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com And if you would like to get smarter this week, you should head over to our website. It's howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point. But which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Amy Nelson.
3: And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy?
2: We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete.
3: We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.